It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I hope you and your family are safe, healthy and well during this difficult uh, time that we are all experiencing. The current pandemic has revealed a lot about our democratic republic. It has shined a light on the inequity and the poverty that exists in everything from healthcare, education, and in our economy. It has shown for many that the bureaucratic nightmare that exists at all levels of government, um, it has shown the resolve and kindness of our people as we see many people step up and go beyond providing for their immediate family to help and to take care of their neighbors. I hope it has also revealed to you how participation and your voice can make government respond to you. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. And then later, I'm going to bring educator turned congressional candidate Jamal Bowman to the front of the class. But before we get heavy into a lesson and discussion, I got my thoroughest girl on the phone. June like the month, Moses like the Bible. Hey, June. Hey, Eljoy Williams, how you feel there? What's going on in your world? Are you still, are you in the room or did, did you go to the mailbox? Because you know you can't go no further. Do you have a mask? Do you have PPE? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't need, I mean, our first responders and people working in, in, you know, hospitals and stuff need, you know, the PPE. But I did do the, um, you know, get a cloth. I got various different material cloth um, mask um, to keep myself covered there. I have a whole box of gloves for when I do go out. Um, I have a doctor's appointment that um, I just talked to the doctor this week and, you know, have to go out as well. So I was like, oh my, I have to go public transportation? <laughs> like, mm. I'm like, can I drive to the city? Um, like, is that something, I mean, are the people like cutting down parking costs so that I can just drive to the city instead of taking public transportation? I don't know. I said, you I can mean, just drive to the city if you. I hope you find a parking space because nobody's really moving their cars. But you will be able to like get to the city in ten minutes. You'll be like, oh my goodness, this is wonderful because there's no cars. I know. I mean, the most I go out is going to um, the longest I was out. I was out for forty five minutes in total. And uh, it's just it was the first day that I felt like, oh, my God, I just need to go outside. I just need to, like, get out of this house and get away. And so I just did a, a normal, like, circle um, bop that I usually do. It's just, like, going to Dollar Tree and then going to the Korean market, a fruit stand, and then, you know, walking and going to uh, this other grocery store. And so I did that roundabout and then walked the long way home just to give, my, you know, myself some time. But I can tell you, June, because you've been outside and stuff too, like being out and about with a mask on, man, my nose be running. It's hard. <laughs> like, it's hard. It's hard keeping that on your face. Flash yeah. hits. People are looking at you like, oh no, you got the road. I'm like, no, I got the hot flash with a mask. Calm right. down. Calm yeah. Down. It's like, you know, I'm sniffling not because I'm sick, but because like walking with this mask is a, you know, it's a little much. It's a challenge. It's a challenge unto itself. It is a challenge. It is no and you know something? 
I need people to understand that when this is over and women are outside without their bras on, part of what we've been doing in the house is deconstructing our bras to create masks so that when we go outside, we are covered. Because, you really? know, it's hard to find. Yeah. Oh, girl, I can't, can't be doing that. You know, my like, bras cost 80 and $90. I can't be doing it. <laughs> I can't be doing it. I've seen some amazing things. People are walking around looking like Hannibal Lecter, but their face is covered, and I, I, I appreciate it. So oh. if you see... Women running around, they letting their fun bags fly. Just, just respect the fact that they're protecting you with the bra like, on you their don't, face. You don't need to say anything. I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying <laughs> the freedom. The only time I put one on is when I'm doing a workout because ain't nobody need all of that bouncing going on. Um, but uh, the uh, this sort of new um, uh, uh, piece in terms of that we and how to stay in the house, stay covered if you do go outside. Um, the sanitary conditions. It did have me going down a rabbit hole of history, June, into uh, watching documentaries and reading stories and news accounts from previous, um, you know, from the uh, Spanish flu or the influenza 1918 piece. Um, so, you know, I immersed myself in that. I don't know why, um, but I did. Um, and just looking to see how government responded, how people um, engaged with the, the disruption in social life. And it was similar. It's, I think now it's just because we believe that we're more advanced from 1918 or from, you know, <laughs> that we can't be brought um, to our knees or we can't be humbled by something like a virus. Oh, we've been very humbled. I mean, I'm a, I'm a person who's old enough to remember um, Americans as a whole screaming USA and laughing at the Russians for having to stand online for toilet paper. I remember Americans as a whole being a little cocky going, oh, look, over there, you know, in the Pacific Rim, those people, they're wearing masks everywhere. This is terrible. Now, look, look at how the chickens have come home to roost here. We are online for an hour at a time to get into the store to find no toilet paper. And if there are some, is brand X and it's $45 and we all have to wear masks or else we die. So maybe we are humbled to the point where we shouldn't point fingers and laugh or ask how we can help. I don't yeah, know. I mean, that's, that's that, my thought process. So you're time. saying the American exceptionalism BS that has, you know, occasionally made us look like assholes across the country. I mean, across the world, maybe we shouldn't do that. Uh -huh. anymore. No, I mean, we there's a way to be prideful of your, country of your you know in in the sense I, I think of it being prideful right like when you're in a competition standpoint like when you're at the Olympics to be prideful like of your team you know or something like that like that makes sense to me but to be like yeah we're America and you guys are over there dying ah America like that doesn't I don't I don't, I don't and feel that's all too that. often our, our behavior sometimes, and it's ugly. That's why other places go, oh, those ugly Americans. So I take the pride of the times where somebody else is having a problem, and we send the ship, and we send the food, and we send the things, and we try to help. Okay, yes. I can feel good about yeah, that. I can feel good. Like, yeah, we're Americans. We help. We do. You know, like, that's what you kind of feel. But, you know, I hate the whole American exceptionalism thing um, to begin with. Um, considering how many skeletons we have in our daggone closet and in the basement and in the um, attic and in that Under the side port. room. <laughs> yes, in the wall. And in the wall <laughs> and outside <laughs> in the back backyard. We don't 
need to be exceptional um, in using that language at all. But, you know, to uh, my earlier point, June, I am also we do have that, but then we also have, you know, people stepping up and helping first responders, people stepping up and helping their neighbors um, and their community and people who they see and, and don't know um, who are experiencing. Um, they were already in an in, uh, in a situation of poverty or at the poverty line before this pandemic. And now, you know, during this pandemic, obviously experiencing greater uh, trauma, greater insecurities, whether it be health insecurities, food insecurities, um, and to see people uh, step up and fill the gap where local government, state government, or the federal government has not stepped in is also something that I would be like, yeah, we're Americans. Yes. Yes, and I hope that we don't do this whole situation like we do after, after something ends. We just go, oh, okay, and then when those people who were on the front lines, I'm talking about your delivery people, your, your, your grocery store workers, as well as the people who work at hospitals, when they come to Washington 10 years from now saying, we still have these issues because we were on the front line of COVID, let's not make them go to Washington every five years to beg for money and have to get big names to help them beg. Let's just do the right thing from the beginning because for those of us who can't and they can, they are at a difficult time and let's not make them relive trauma 10 years from now begging for a handout because if we're exceptional, we're America, we can just do these things. We can do the big things, y'all. We can do it. You know, it's something seeing some of our folks who are, you know, um, lean towards or, you know, are outright say that they are socialists or democratic socialists and seeing people say, you know, we could just give people money. See, like, you know, we don't have to, you know, people make it seem difficult. And it's like the the argument that we are all um uh, you know, competing for the same dollar where there are, as you mentioned, if you look under the mattress, there's a, a million other dollars, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and so it creates this scarcity um, issue. And I don't want to get into the details of, you know, the economy. Yeah, like into the economy where people are like, we are competing for limited resources in, you know, the, no, I'm saying yeah. that the, what we're, what we are doing and saying that we can only provide this this amount, um, this small amount of support to people who are at the poverty line or only support this. Like we have greater resources to provide for people who are hungry. We have greater resources to provide housing so that people um, are not sleeping on the streets. We have that ability. And if we can go into debt for wars, if we can go into debt for building up police departments and um, the army and, and, and all of that, we can provide for the our folks here without <laughs> you know going into trillions of dollars of debt now saying that as my moderate leaning politics also june yeah. i am concerned about this like ever increasing deficit as like an overall country because that we're putting that on our future kids on how to make it up and since nothing is running, there's no FICA money coming. There's no tax money coming because businesses aren't going. I mean, I understand the circle, which is this crazy life. But what I will say is we have to start to look for political will to 
to for real help the least among us and not offer that lip service. And I want people to take a moment and look at all the commercials, all the people who are the the ones who are jumping on the bandwagon because they care so much now. Is it a facade or are they really caring? Have you checked out your local people who are literally lugging food around and out there risking themselves to hand out food or whatever? You know, look to those things because right about now, there's a lot of people who are making a lot of moves, but they didn't do a lot of things to help when it was completely necessary. So please be like Santa and make a list because mm. we're going to have to check it when it's done. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other the other thing to point, you know, point out is, you know, what I'm saying is we need to start from, you know, whether you are the president in Congress, the governor, the mayor, whoever, start from the premise of how do we care um, and how do we provide for as many people as possible rather than um, what can what little can we give here so that we can, you know, enjoy the uh, uh, the fruits of um, somebody else's labor on the other side? Right. If you are completely driven by 100 percent, you know, uh, profit and driven, you know, by that rather than the people who help you make that profit, the people who help you build that business, um, then to me, that's rotten. If you are only, yeah, if you are only thinking about what is the maximum dollar that I can make rather than how can I care for or be a good um, leader, uh, whether it's from a business standpoint or a government standpoint, um, for all of the people who work with me to produce this outcome, right? So as a business uh, a business owner, I'm thinking about not only, you know, what, what my bottom line, how much money I can make, but the people who help me make that, like how can we succeed together? And I don't believe that everybody is thinking in that way, particularly in our economy. If it was, then people would care more for their employees. They would care they they would care more for their overall business practices. And from a government standpoint, if you're thinking about how can we care for the um, most of our citizens, we wouldn't have an increase in childhood poverty. We wouldn't have inequity in terms of our economy, in terms of education, or in terms of healthcare. We wouldn't have that if we started from the premise of how can we care for um, all of the people who contribute um, to make us successful. And part of that starts with understanding that the least among us actually do contribute. Stop erasing their contributions so that you can dehumanize and say that they're undeserving. Please. I, I, that is literally the lived experience I have. So understand, regressive taxes also get paid by those poor people. You know, they, they, they are contributing to the economy. No one here really is a quote-unquote drain. Let's start with a change in mindset because this pandemic should have changed us. Let's start there. Yep. Don't mind me, I'm regular. <laughs> yeah, don't mind me, I'm regular. Listen to Eljoy, she is extraordinary, and she's been thinking these things through even through the pandemic while I'm just sitting over here schlepping food. So please, listen to Eljoy. Oh, Lord. Anyway. Well... <laughs> Well, June, it is, I mean, I feel like even before the pandemic, we hadn't seen each other in a couple of weeks. So I feel like really distant and really disconnected from you. I can't wait to see you again. 
I can't wait to see. I hope we get to hug people and we are. Oh, yes, you know what? I'm going to really brush up on my kid and play so I can even do the spin kick. You know? Oh yes, I saw up. that. I tried to get my, I tried to get my husband to do that with me, and he just looked at me and kept walking. So. um Mm, we'll but be he, good has said, he has said that um, he will be using this as an excuse for the rest of his life as to why he does not go out with people or hand, do handshakes or like anything with people. Um, he's just like, yeah, I lived through that Rona. So I'm not talking to him. Like, I'm not going to kiss nobody. And, you know, he was like, so then, you know, our grandkids can be like, why granddaddy don't hug nobody? Whatever. He lived through that Rona. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. But that will be the story. That will be the story. Oh, my goodness. Oh, thank you. I love Gallo's humor. (laughs) All right. Well, when we come back um, here on Sunday Civics, as I mentioned, I have a guest to bring to the front of the class. He's an educator turned congressional candidate. Jamal Bowman will be uh, joining us to have a third conversation because how many of us are homeschooling kids right now? Oof, oh, my Jesus gosh. Lord. Oh, my gosh. I pray for y'all. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to talk about education policy and how um, being a principal translate into uh, running for Congress and um, what we can do about our uh, education system in, in that aspect, plus many more things um, because congressional uh, con- Congress members don't get to just work on one thing. Um, so we'll talk more about that when we come back with more Sunday Civics. Thanks, June. Love you. Thank you. Love you, too. Miss you. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you Welcome know. back to Sunday Civics. Earlier this week, I had a wonderful discussion with an innovative educator who's now running for Congress, Jamal Bowman. He has fought for teachers, students, and families for nearly 20 years. He's been a leader in the opt-out movement across the state of New York and connected parents from diverse backgrounds to that fight. He's led efforts to educate elected officials on the impact of toxic stress on health and education outcomes, and he recently earned his doctorate in education focusing on the benefit of the community school model. After seeing the failures in our education system, Jamal started Cornerstone Academy for Social Action that's located in the Baychester neighborhood of the Bronx. It's an alternative, um, I'm sorry, it's an innovative public school with a strong emphasis on student voice, holistic education, cultural awareness, and love. Now, through his work in education, he's seen firsthand how low-income families are locked out of opportunity by a system that's rigged for the wealthy and privileged he, through his work, has been a principal. He's been an advocate and a principal. He's seen the results of inadequate housing, homelessness, mental health, the racist immigration system, the school-to-prison pipeline, food deserts, and trauma-filled environments has had an impact on children and their families. Well, welcome to the show, Jamal. Thank you so much for uh, joining us here on Sunday Civics. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here. So we are going to begin where we begin with all of our guests, particularly when you are here for the first time. Why don't you tell us the story of your first civic action? 
First civic action. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, I think back to when I was a kid and I would hold the door for an old older person walking behind me uh, to go into the door first. Uh, that comes to mind. Uh, I also think about when I first uh, started teaching in 1999. I, at the moment, I didn't think of it as a civic action, but now as I reflect, I think it absolutely is a civic action, a civic duty. You know, educators provide an amazing service uh, to our country in so many ways, and and in so many ways we're, we're sort of the unsung heroes, I, I think, of our country. Uh, so becoming a teacher comes to mind, but then I guess, you know, after working within the education system for about seven or eight years and really uh, dealing with the inequality and the lack of resources and just how so many of my students just had to struggle, not just within the school system, but outside the school system, uh, and then and then taking the opportunity to push back. So I would really uh, often engage uh, elected officials, parents, teachers, uh, in organizing around, you know, different things that need to happen in our schools. So, you know, I think in 2008 is when I wrote organized parents, teachers, and students to write a proposal for a new public uh, district school. Uh, that might have been my first sort of big uh, civic action in uh, pushing back against the system that I thought uh, wasn't doing right by our students. You know, you created a new district school. <laughs> Talk a bit about like what that means, because I know we hear a lot of conversation about private schools and charter schools. How it's basically difference of how schools are managed. But mm -hmm. talk a bit about that process and what mm -hmm. it awakened in you. Yeah, so, you know, this is during the Michael Bloomberg era, uh, mayoral uh, era in New York City, uh, where where we all know, you know, stop and frisk was taking place. Uh, but there was also a zero tolerance sort of climate in our schools. And, you know, I was working at the time as, as the dean of students for arts and technology. And part of my job was to monitor the metal detectors as students would come into the building. Uh, and I didn't feel like an educator at that point. I felt like a corrections officer, and it was not what I got into education to be uh, or to do. Um, so, you know, Mayor Bloomberg at that time, he really wanted to push the charter school agenda, uh, and he was really, you know, uh, he really attacked, you know, teachers' unions and public schools as being part of the failure of a larger system, and he wanted to open charter schools. So we found a loophole myself, uh, parents, teachers, and others found a loophole where the mayor allowed certain individuals to write proposals and pre present proposals for new public schools, new district community public schools. Uh, so that's what we did. You know, we brainstormed ideas, we wrote a proposal, uh, and we opened up a school in the Northeast Bronx. Uh, the school is funded by city, state, and federal funds. Um, as all public schools are. Uh, the school is run by a school principal in collaboration with uh, the teachers in the school. Um, and we have a huge uh, parent involvement piece as well, which had the parents uh, supporting us in running the school. So yeah, different than charter schools where charter schools often don't work with teachers unions. Our school was, you know, did have a strong teacher union presence. Uh, charter schools have appointed boards uh, versus, you know, our school, which doesn't have a board. It's an it's a elected school board at the district level, not at the school level. And, uh, yeah, you know, we opened a district public school. We, we did very well. 
And, uh, you know, I just resigned that position January 1st to run uh, for Congress full time. So let's get the politics out of the way because I want to dive more into education. Um, but you are okay. a candidate for Congress, right? Talk a bit about that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, June 2019, you know, June 19th, 2019, actually, we launched the campaign for Congress uh, here in the 16th District of New York, uh, challenging long-term incumbent Elliot Engel in the primary. Uh, just how long-term has he been there? He's been there 31 years, you know, 31 years in the same congressional seat, uh, serving about 10% in the dis- of the district while neglecting the other 90% you know, which is unacceptable. You know, I've served this district uh, for 10 years as a middle school principal. Uh, I've served uh, in public education for 20 years overall. And we've seen the impact of bad policy on the lives of our students. You know, it all intersects at the doorsteps of our schools each and every day. So we know the kids that are dealing with hunger and food insecurity. We know the kids who are dealing with housing insecurity, the families who have criminal justice entanglement, the impact of environmental injustice, uh, what happens in underfunded schools, what happens when you have lack of economic opportunity, lack of safe places to play. Uh, And unfortunately, Elliot Engel hasn't been a leader on any of those issues. And uh, for me, you know, as we worked within our new school, we were able to push back against that system and get additional resources for our kids. And we've been able to organize across the state and across the country to really put public schools at the top of the political agenda. And for me, the turning point came in 2017, 2018, when 34 children died within the K-12 school system in the Bronx and 17 died via suicide. You know, and being wow. an educator, you realize that these deaths are not, um, are not ha- they, they don't happen by chance, and they don't happen just because of what people try to point to as black-on-black crime. These deaths are created to trauma, and these, this trauma is created to bad policy, policy that's, that's created communities of concentrated poverty, co- pro- uh, policy that's created communities uh, of, of rabid neglect, n- neglect. Um, and we've seen that in our kids. So all of that led to me exploring a possible run for Congress. And, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to get the endorsement of the Justice Democrats at the very beginning of the campaign. And since then, we've gotten over 40 endorsements, including the Working Families Party, the Sunrise Movement, Public Advocate Jamani Williams, Zephyr Teachout, and a slew of other endorsements. And, uh, you know, we're running a very strong campaign. You know, we turned in thousands of petition signatures. We only needed about 300. And we have hundreds of volunteers literally making thousands of calls every week, remaining connected, connecting us to uh, voters throughout the district. And, uh, you know, I'm on Zoom calls every week and Facebook lives every week just to remain remain connected and engaged and listening and learning Uh, so that we could craft policy in alignment with the needs of those who are most marginalized in the district, which are the people that Elliot Engel has neglected throughout his time uh, in office. Mm. So I want to move now to policy and that your, you know, the drive for you to run for Congress was after being a practitioner, after being in a school building, being a principal, being an educator, and knowing that the uh, lack of policy or a policy perspective of 
educating in a, a, a whole child and a whole community. We talk about here on the show all the time, education is the largest budget item for states, um, along with health. Mm-hmm. Education is one of those things that goes all the way from the micro local level to the federal level. So mm-hmm. from a federal mm-hmm. level um, with you seeking to go to Congress, we know that what happens day to day in a school be dictated more by state and local policy. But talk about what you think is missing or what can be how we can be creative on the federal level in addressing education policy. Yeah, well, you know, the federal government has gotten a lot more involved in public education, you know, over the last, you know, 20 to 25 years. You know, with the passage of No Child Left Behind in 2001, the federal government literally reached into classrooms across the country and are now manipulating a lot of what happens in those classrooms. And they've done that through the mandating of annual standardized tests uh, in grades three through eight and once in high school across the country. When they did that, you know, they incentivized states to mandate annual standardized testing, which also led to the mandating of standardized curriculum, which has now led to the mandating of standardized teaching. Um, But that all started with a federal policy. So in terms of what happens at at a federal level, you know, we can incentivize a new and different approach to teaching and learning Uh, in schools across the country. For example, we can incentivize the teaching of black history and culture in every school uh, throughout the country. We can incentivize uh, the teaching of civics as a mandated course in schools across the country. We can incentivize project-based learning. We can incentivize integrated schools. Uh, We can provide additional funding to schools that have been historically underfunded, which is one of the things we call for in our New Deal for Education. Schools, unfortunately, continue to be underfunded, particularly in poor black or brown communities. So we call for the quadrupling of Title I funding, which is funding that goes to those schools. We call for quadrupling of that funding. We call for fully funding IDEA, which is the federal special education law, uh, which is something that hasn't been fully funded. And again, we call for aligning what happens in the K-12 school system with the needs of our current economy. Uh, So another policy platform that we're pushing is something called the Green New Deal, which is pretty much creating an economy in alignment with the environmental emergency that we are all living within. And if we have a K-12 system designed in alignment with that, then kids will come out of high school ready to work and ready to earn a family-sustaining wage. Uh, We also support uh, universal child care because, as you know, child care costs are, are very, very high while real wages have remained stagnated. So if we have universal childcare, we're able to provide better support uh, to families who are struggling and families who need it. Um, There's so much more we can do at a federal level, not just looking at education in isolation, but looking at it holistically, looking at at how it works with healthcare, how it works with jobs, how it works with community resources. You know, that's the approach. The The approach has to be whole child, whole family, whole community. Um, if we take that approach, we can deal with a public health crisis like a pandemic a lot better than what we're currently dealing with it now. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the federal government got more involved um, in mm-hmm. classrooms. Do you do you believe overall that that is a good thing or do you think that education, because that's another debate, right? How we educate our children should be more focused on the state and local level. 
Yeah, so I, I believe in uh, top-down infrastructure, bottom-up innovation. Um, so, you know, at a federal level, you know, there are certain policies that can be put in place. There are certain things that can be incentivized and certain funding that can be provided that provide an infrastructure for people in their local community to meet the needs of their community, right? So, you know, for example, in New York City, we have something called mayoral control, you know, where the mayor, you know, uh, single-handedly or unilaterally chooses the chancellor of the entire school system that serves 1.1 million children. Now, we know New York City is diverse, and we know every section, every district in New York City has different needs. So mayoral control disempowers the people in their own district. That's not something I support. I support community control of schools. I think the voices of parents within a particular district matter the most. And those parents, uh, their voices and what they believe needs to happen in their schools should be happening in conjunction with the infrastructure that a federal government can provide, um, if that makes sense. So it's sort of an inside, outside. Uh, so basically you want down, the, approach. the federal government to create the infrastructure, but it be managed more locally, primarily of parents and students themselves. Correct. Yes. And, and the, the educators in that space as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, elected school boards uh, quite often uh, are comprised of the parents in a particular community. In New York City right now, for example, there, 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 are, there are elected community education councils, but they don't have the power to, to really implement uh, any new initiatives within their schools because we have no mayoral control. That's unacceptable. You know, again, parents know the needs of their children and their community more than other people. So they should have more of a voice and more of a say of what happens in their schools. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, one of the aspects we have a, a show planned uh, coming up talking about where money for schools comes from. This is also something that people don't have a general knowledge of, of how mm -hmm. schools are funded. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, so the majority of school funding comes from local taxes, uh, local property taxes, uh, which is a racist policy in and of itself because uh, during the New Deal, FDR's New Deal, uh, the, the suburbs were born and huge federal investment went to create it, creating suburbs across the country. Uh, in the suburbs, you have you know higher taxes for your homes, higher property taxes, and that money goes into the school system, which provides additional funding for schools in, in those areas. You know, black and Latino people were redlined out of those communities and, and forced to live in areas of concentrated poverty. And in those areas, property taxes are lower, which is why the schools in those areas aren't funded at the same rate. Um, so we have to shift how our schools are funded because our schools need to be funded based on the needs of the people in that community, not just the economic needs. But we have to take into account, you know, children with special needs. And we also have to take in, in, into account the historical trauma that black and brown people have dealt with uh, in this country uh, since this country was first founded. That trauma has an impact on uh, education outcomes and health outcomes and overall brain development. All of that needs to be measured in terms of how we fund our schools, uh, particularly in urban communities. Um, so most of it comes from local taxes. Uh, the next big pot comes from state taxes, and the next big pot comes from the federal government. Um, again, we're calling for the federal government to do more there, but we definitely have to reverse uh, the racist policy that allows, you know, in this district, for example, Scarsdale, which is wealthy, 
schools to be funded at a higher rate than schools in the Bronx. You know, that's just unacceptable. You know, I remember learning, you know, when, when I found out sort of how the funding works for school. And I was like, don't we know how much it costs to educate a child in general? Like, why can't it just be based upon <laughs> like, you know, that's before I sort of developed the equity model. It was more of the equality model. Right. It's like if you know right. that it costs, you know, one hundred and eighty two dollars a week to provide a proper education to a child does everybody like all schools should get 182 dollars you know in order to to do that Mm -hmm. but then getting the equity model realizing that well if you have more students that um, need more in terms of resources need smaller class uh, sizes need one-on-one attention and things of that nature well you know they need more than 182 let's say you know if we were using that number they need additional support they need additional space and so we should provide from there but I remember learning about the property tax as you mentioned and those who have been listening to the show for a while we talked about um, in detail how the you know housing discrimination and how it worked tactically Mm -hmm. across the country and devaluing places where more people of color live and that has a direct impact on the base of education financial support for our schools so what? <laughs> exactly right. Go, go ahead. No, no, no. I, you know, just, just that that education piece of people understanding that difference, and it is still even doing like civics conversations and talks and bringing up education and get, getting for people. This is, you know, your property tax value is based upon this, and seeing the light bulb go off in people, and they're like, "What?" <laughs> you know, because that's not yeah. a common thing that people know. Mm-hmm. And, and New York City schools are still chronically underfunded. They're, they're not funded at the 100% rate that they should be funded at uh, because of, you know, a state law that hasn't been fully funded, the Campaign for Fiscal Equity. So it was a lawsuit brought on by parents, you know, I want to say, you know, 13 years ago. Uh, oh, which I think it's more than that. Equitable funding for <laughs> Say it again. I said, I think it's longer than that now, right? Yeah, I think it was longer than that. I think I think it might have been settled 13 years ago, but it was brought maybe like 20 years ago. Um, but the, the point is, New York State schools are owed over $4 billion as we speak, and New York City schools are owed over $2 billion. And part of civics is really organizing and pushing back on elected officials to ensure that they fight to fully fund a particular policy, for example, in this case, campaign for fiscal equity. And although, you know, over the last several years, education funding has increased for public schools across the state, uh, the campaign for fiscal equity still hasn't been fully funded. Um, so that that's part of civic, civics as well. It's about engaging with your neighbors around a particular issue, organizing around that issue, toward pushing back on elected officials uh, who haven't been responsive to you as an individual around a particular issue. You know, that's something we did in education, not just for funding, but, you know, against the Common Core standards because we felt they were developmentally inappropriate and against the tying a teacher's evaluation uh, to standardized test scores, uh, which is something we got a moratorium on. So organizing is a huge aspect of, you know, civics, edu- uh, civics education or civic engagement in general. Yeah. yeah. 
Woo, we could have a whole like series just on the education piece about that as well. But the the other piece I, I wanted to talk to you about beyond education, right? Even though I, be, I agree with you that we need more of a focus in how we can be creative on the federal level for education uh, policy. And similar to how I believe the federal government should do our infrastructure, um, meaning our roads and bridges and um, utilities and things of that nature. Education is also part, I believe, of that infrastructure because that from there comes your future tax base. (laughs) It comes your future workforce. Um, And so if you don't perceive education as infrastructure for your economy, for human services in general, I think that's kind of a skewed piece and I, you know, I talk to people about that all the time of education, healthcare, and physical infrastructure, sort of being part of this these three pieces that the federal government should hold. Absolutely, and miseducation sustains the economic inequality that we deal with on a regular basis. You know, if we properly educate all of our citizens, our country would thrive at a whole nother level than what it's thriving at right now. Right now, we have wealth concentrated into the hands of one-tenth of one percent. We have a military-industrial complex that continues to be, you know, disproportionately funded, and we see, you know, the Pentagon budget going up every year, um, but education continues to lag behind. Healthcare continues to lag behind. You know, federal jobs guarantee is non-existent um, at this point. Um, So we absolutely need to make sure our children are educated at the highest level, all children, regardless of race or class, because it does better for the entire country as a whole. And it goes back to the founding. Actually, the very first show I did, and I think we're now at 115 or something, but the very first show that I did um, on Sunday Civics was about education and talking to Regent Young about what, you know, what the, the, the basis of our education system was built on. And we had a very lengthy conversation about that. And before, you know, schools were public, they were private um, institutions that were created, yep. that even a lot of, you know, sort of the uh, wealthy folks set up in their company towns, because again, they knew that, well, if we educate them, then they would be able to come and be a part of the workforce. Like they understood Understood, you know, that we needed somewhere for the kids to go so that their parents could work for me and then they could future work for me. <laughs> you know, like it was <laughs> that that was the perception. Of course, you had the other people who were just like, you know, I want to take care of the children and best thing of my heart. Yeah, yeah, we knew that. Uh, but but there were the people mm-hmm. who from a capitalist standpoint, you know, and it, it always bothers me. I was like, see, y'all can't even be consistent with your capitalist values. Because if you were because if you were consistent with that, you would invest in education. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Can't be consistent, Jamal. Um, <laughs> oh boy! So uh, talk to us a little bit more besides education of else you're seeking to uh, represent your neighbors in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. So it goes back to your point around civic engagement. So. Elliot Engel has been in office 31 years, hasn't been a leader on the issues that matter most. He probably serves about 10% of the district uh, consistently, uh, but the district has you know, a lot more needs than just uh, what those 10% uh, 
of his constituents uh, require. So, you know, we're fighting for housing as a human right. You know, we support Ilhan Omar's bill to invest $1 trillion over the next 10 years to build 12 million units of social housing and end homelessness in America and rebuild what's happening in public housing, which has been neglected and dilapidated for decades. The federal government hasn't invested another dime in public housing uh, over the last decade because they're looking to privatize it. We believe the federal government needs to step in, invest properly in social housing so that people can have clean, dignified, affordable housing that they have part ownership in. Uh, in this district alone, we need, we have set, we need 70,000 affordable units right now, which means we have that many people living with housing insecurity and they can lose their homes at any moment. So housing is another big uh, component of our platform. A Green New Deal is a huge component of our platform. Right now we're dealing with a global environment emergency. It's happening right here in this district in terms of air quality, in terms of rising sea levels. Uh, you know, if you live in the Bronx, you're three times more likely to die of asthma than anywhere else in the country. So dealing with our environmental issues, getting the net zero carbon emissions over the next 10 years is crucial. We have to stop investing in fossil fuels as a country and start investing in clean, renewable energy. Uh, the Green New Deal also rights the wrongs of the New Deal, which kept black people away from jobs uh, during the FDR era. And the Green New Deal targets black and brown communities and poor communities for federal jobs guarantee. Again, think of it as a 21st century industrial revolution. Uh, the Green New Deal is something we support uh, tremendously, and that's another huge part of our campaign. And overall economic opportunity, uh, which includes jobs and job training, not just in alignment with the Green New Deal, but in alignment on high, in the high priority sectors uh, throughout the city and, and throughout the country. Um, and then the last thing I want to mention is healthcare. You know, we believe healthcare is a human right. We believe that we shouldn't have, you know, 40,000 people dying every year because they do not have healthcare. You know, in the wealthiest nation on earth, we should be able to pro provide healthcare to everyone. Uh, and we should be able to invest in our healthcare system in a way where if a pandemic hits, you know, we're not caught on our heels and poor people and black and brown people are dying at disproportionate rates. You know, epidemiologists, they study pandemics and they study the spread of pathogens. And this is, you know, worse than SARS and MERS, but it's similar to it. And it's something that we knew was coming. But again, we continue to give tax breaks to the wealthy, allow large corporations to not pay taxes and hide money overseas instead of investing in healthcare, investing in jobs, investing in environment, investing in education, so we can uplift uh, the entire country. Um, mm -hmm. So those are a few other areas that we're focused on as part of this campaign. So, you know, the, la the last thing I, I, I would ask, and I'm interested in your perspective in this, I feel that a lot of folks who are running for Congress and, you know, obviously as a strategist, I know this is, you know, what you're supposed to do, right? Communicating all of the things that you want to lead on, committees you want to be on, um, <clears throat> and sort of leading the charge on getting the work done. But we also know from a civics perspective that the Congress is not an executive branch, right? So 
you're not going to go in and be able to dictate, well, this is all of the things that, you know, we're going to do. There's still a body where in which, you know, if elected, you have to work within. So talk to me a bit about your thoughts about the best way to do that, given that you can't make unilateral decisions similar to, you know, you being the principal or you being, you know, the executive of the Congress. So how do you see that working in a body, a member-based entity? No, absolutely. Well, you know, even as a principal, I wasn't able to make a unilateral decision. (laughs) They're still a superintendent and they're still a good, right? (laughs) always had to, you know, work in collaboration with parents and teachers, especially because, you know, I believe personally that, you know, teachers who are empowered, you know, are, are better, are more invested in the school. Uh, So it's important for them to, you know, have a voice in how the school functions. So that's just my, my leadership philosophy is all about collaborative leadership. You know, so Congress has a progressive caucus, and that progressive caucus has been fighting for many of the things that we believe in, you know, as a campaign. They've been fighting for environmental justice, you know, health care as a human right, housing as a human right. So there are already people there fighting for these issues. So, you know, building coalitions with them and working with them uh, to move other members of Congress is going to be huge. The other huge part is maintaining relationships and connections to individuals and grassroots organizations that have already supported our campaign, you know, using an inside-outside strategy. Stay connected to the people on the ground doing the important work and using their expertise and experience on what they're hearing to craft policy that centers working-class people. You know, I'm very thankful that people like Congresswoman, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and others you know, they sort of broke through that glass ceiling, if you will, if you will. And now we're having conversations that center our collective humanity, that center, you know, decreasing military spend, spending, that centers the working class. And I'm just coming in to add to that conversation, to add to building coalitions within Congress. And because of my background and expertise in education, I'm adding that perspective and connecting it uh, to the other issues that are taking place. So, uh, you know, the work has already begun. You know, I'm not going to be there alone, uh, and I'm going to continue to to use my philosophy of collaborative, collaborative leadership uh, to do work at the highest level. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much, Jamal, and I'm sure we will hear more about you as we get closer to June. Thank you so much for taking time um, in the middle of Zoom calls. I hope you're using something else besides Zoom, um, but I'm, I hope you're take, glad that you took some <laughs> some few moments uh, to share with us and share with Absolutely. our audience. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here. Stay safe out there. All right. How can it be? Thank you to 
to you, Jamal Bowman, for joining us. Shout out to June, my thoroughest girls, um, and our uh, my other thoroughest girl, Larie Daniel Favors. She is doing well as well. I know you guys hear her on um, uh, during the week with Karen Hunter. I want to thank you all for joining us this Sunday for uh, another conversation uh, about civics and engagement in our democratic republic. We'll be back next Sunday with more civics, more engagement strategies on how we can make a difference and impact our local, state, and federal government. Thank you again. Please be safe. Um, Please uh, uh, stay home if you can. And those of you who are out on the front lines, whether you're working in hospitals, whether you are in other essential businesses, um, or if you are out volunteering and helping to take care um, of those in need, we thank you so much uh, for your sacrifice. We thank you so much for your work and we'll continue to fight and advocate for you to get all that you need. Stay safe. It's who we are.